Nasso Lasso. This afternoon we return to the meditative cultivation of Upeksha, or equanimity. And I'd like to more or less divide the meditation session into two halves, more or less. The first half ho- focusing on the cultivation of equanimity more in the in the very, very meaningful Theravada mode of imperturbability. It is something of an emotional state, but it's not just an emotion of calm, but very specifically it's an equilibrium that is free of the imbalances of craving and hostility. It's really that. So within that calm, there could be joyfulness, there could be a wide range of emotions. It's not just you always walk around in the same emotion. That would be, I think, mentally impaired. But an equilibrium, so one's not falling into the mental afflictions of either craving, attachment, greed, and so forth, or hostility, aggression, hatred, anger, and all of that bandwidth. So that imperturbability, that calm, that centeredness, the groundedness, which I think clearly is something valued throughout the world, such a person who can maintain that in the face of catalyst situations that for many people would arouse intense desire, craving, and perhaps anxiety that goes along with it, or hostility, aggression, and so forth. People who can keep their cool, keep grounded, keep present, not fall into what Paul Ekman and other affective psychologists call a refractory period. And I won't give a whole explanation of that, but you might want to check it out if you don't already know about it. But in very, in very, very brief terms, it's where the mind, again, becomes very small. It gets drawn into one particular tiny bandwidth of, let's say, hostility, and then can see the world only through that bandwidth. All right? In other words, it's a type of delusion. It's a type of mental impairment where we just are seeing whatever's taking place through a very distorted lens. It can also be the distorted lens of, of infatuation. It can be the distorted lens of, of paranoia. Right? It could be a wide variety. But where the mind collapses down into a very narrow spectrum and sees things vividly within that spectrum, but can't see anything outside of it, and basically draws everything into it. So everything becomes scary. Everything becomes disagreeable. Everything about a person or a place becomes incredibly admirable and delightful and wonderful and so it's always skewed. This imperturbability, this equanimity, is not falling into, or as Paul Ekman says, not getting caught in the grip of a destructive emotion or an afflictive emotion, right? So how to cultivate that? Well, Buddha Gosa in his Visuddhimagga, which I've cited so many times, says a real catalyst for this is to be reflecting deeply and I'll use a more secular term, rather than going to karma and think, oh, this is some Asian metaphysical belief system, just go to causality, just straight causality. And that is when, you <clears throat> when we do encounter a situation, a person, a place, something for which craving is really arising, and again, we're zoning in, we're falling into refractory period, think, oh, if only I have that, then I'll be happy, and if I don't get that, I'm going to be so unhappy. So the craving side, and you can figure out the hostility side, then what we're missing out on, <clears throat> as the mind is focusing on a kind of a unicausal, unicausal approach, this one thing will make me happy. If I don't get it, I won't be happy. This one person, place, thing, situation is making me unhappy. If I can be free of that, then I'll be happy. And it's never true. And so to back up and have this panoramic vision of this matrix, the network, the lattice of causality, of primary causes, the contributing conditions, the whole mesh of subject and optic interrelationships, how we ourselves are contributing. I can tell, I'll, I'll tell you one of, of my cravings, and that is I travel so much that I get free upgrades. And when I travel across a big ocean, I really want that upgrade. Craving arises. I, I don't, I'm tall and I've got a funky spine. I don't want to be in that economy seat for 14 hours stretch from Los Angeles to Sydney. I'm sorry, I really don't want to do that. That is a source of suffering, at least pretty intense discomfort, whereas if I can go horizontal, that is a source of bliss. If not bliss, at least comfort, you know? <laughs> and so I, that's one of my real attachments. I watch it coming up. I watch it coming up, you know? Oh, I got the upgrade. Oh, and I'm happy. I'm happy. And I hold, hold on to it. Don't lose it. And get that 1K status next year, too. 
<laughs> you know, so there it is. Perhaps not so malevolent craving, but there it is. It's definitely craving. There's no question about it. I don't think anybody really gets damaged, except for me, by the craving. But there it is. But it's one example, you know. And so seeing the network, that have, have I ever traveled in an economy and enjoyed myself? Well, let's moving right on. <laughs> Have I ever traveled? Actually, I traveled in first class. Somebody bought me a business class, and I got a free upgrade to first class, and it was miserable the whole way because I was sick. I couldn't enjoy anything on that flight, and I was traveling as if I was a millionaire. You know, it was incredibly expensive. I didn't pay for it, but it was a free upgrade. But the whole thing was just, the whole trip was just unpleasant all the way through, and it was first class. I almost never travel first class. It's a simple point there. It's causality. It's not enough to have a nice seat to be happy. Otherwise, I would just sit here all the time. You know? This is a nice seat. This is kind of decently business class. This could even be first class seat. You actually just sit here, you know, get a TV screen in front of me, and I'll be happy forever. <laughs> so backing up and just bringing one's wisdom to it, bringing one's wisdom to the cultivation of upeksha, seeing whatever's coming up, that one thing is not a true source of happiness, that one person, place, what have you, is not a true source in and of itself, all by itself, a source of my unhappiness. Seeing the broader network, seeing what we're contributing, and then with that wisdom bringing, bringing, being brought to bear, maintaining the imperturbability, and one way may recall one of the most commonly cited statements or verses from Shantideva's text, and that is especially in terms of the, the, the hostility, aversion side. It comes because something happens that we don't want. We don't want. We don't want it for ourselves. Or the woman who's on a campaign of getting rid of landmines all over the world. Well, I doubt that she's ever in any, any significant danger of stepping on a landmine herself. I think she probably avoids that. But this anger, this anger, and, and she said, I operate out of anger. That's my, that's my prime directive. That's my fundamental incentive. Anger. Oh, that's anger for the sake of all those who are harmed because of landmines. Is there an, so there's something that I, I agree with her. I think that needs to be addressed. There can be immeasurably fewer landmines. Maybe just one in a historical military museum. That would be really nice. One there. That's, this is what we used to use to blow up children you know, and enemies when they got in the way. And so... When we consider something needs to be done, Shantideva's verse, when something arises that really we feel this is wrong, whether it's on a personal level, somebody gyps us or shortchanges us or exploits us, whatever, something personal, something like that that's really for other people because she's not in any danger at all. If there's something you can do about it, why be unhappy? Right? And if there's nothing you can do about it, after you've brought all your wisdom to bear and there's nothing you can do about it, then why be unhappy? You know. So either way, just do what needs to be done. But why throw yourself into a, what do they call it? Get your knickers in a twist. Why get your knickers into a twist? I think that would be very uncomfortable. I, I hardly ever wear knickers, but I can imagine if they were twisted, <laughs> especially for us men. <laughs> I wouldn't want my knickers in a twist. I can feel it. I'm sure that. Or why be upset? Just do it. So, of course, the near enemy of this is just fall into apathy. Ah, oh, what can you do? I, well, what can you do? After all, just, just hang out and just meditate, you know, or smoke dope or watch television or just, you know, check out. So clearly that's the false facsimile of equanimity. But then when we envision, especially when we see something needs to be done, whether it's your child is misbehaving or the politics in your area is getting really corrupt, whatever it may be, where you feel something should be done here, I should be doing something. I should be addressing this. Then you might recall, I think I might have mentioned it before, so I'll go through it briefly this time as we're kind of slowly wrapping things up. This will be the last cycle for these 10, ten days of meditation. The four modes of enlightened activity I find enormously helpful just to bear in mind. And that is when we see something needs to be done in the world, could be done, should be done, it would be a good thing to be done, then we can consider what, how, what's, what's needed. And all four of these modes are called enlightened activity, which is to say they are embraced, fully embraced by bodhisattvas, by Buddhas, enlightened beings, which means they can be done 
without being activated by mental afflictions, by craving, hostility, envy, and so forth and so on. So the first of these, again, if this is a review, is it a review, do you recall? The first one being the activity of pacifying, calming. Does that ring a bell? No big up and down nods. This is useful. This is very useful. Okay? And so when we see something needs to be done, one possibility, and I think there's a sequence here. I find the sequence very helpful. And when I see politicians getting this out of sequence, it almost always turns out bad. And I invite you to, to use your own intelligence, reading the media when you come out of here. See when people skip and they go to one of the later ones, whether it turns out bad. Check it out. So the first one is pacifying. There's disturbance in the world. There's something that needs to be done. And the first thought is, might I come here as a peacemaker? There is illness. This needs to be pacified. It needs to be healed. That's a very peaceful thing to do. Okay? It's illness. It, there's discourse. There's dissension. There's violence. Could we come in here and simply be peacemakers? Could we calm? Could we soothe? Could we heal? Could we pacify? So that's one mode of enlightened activity. And it's very characteristic when we think of Christian saints, almost always, that's the mode of activity. You know, they have the, the little birds landing on their shoulder, they're healing, they're doing wonderful things, and it tends to be in a very ben benevolent, pacifying, calming way. We associate that with saintliness. We associate it with medicine. We associate it with the, the social workers, the people who are bringing healing, bringing succor, being you know, calming and soothing influence to the world. And so there's one. And it's color-coded, by the way, and it's white. So no, no wonder that nurses and doctors often wear white. And then the second one is activity of, enrich uh, of enrichment or enriching. Enriching. And that is if you see poverty, for example, then what people who are really suffering, because they don't have enough food, they don't have shelter, they don't have clothing, they don't really need a hug. They don't need to be soothed. Well, you know, Poverty comes to some people, but, you know, I'll give you a big hug. Let's talk about it. You know, I'll, I'll comfort you in your poverty. No, they want food. They don't really want seething. It's not a matter of healing. It's want enrich them in some way. Give them some clothing. Give them some food. Give them shelter. If people are ignorant, they're suffering, they can't get a job because they never got an education. You don't want to soothe them. That really sucks not having an education, but, you know, I'll give you a hug and let's talk about it and eat some marshmallows. You know, that's not enough. They need, they need something now more intangible. It's not money. It's not tangible goods. It's knowledge. It's knowledge. It's learning a language. It's learning a skill. That's enrichment. So there are many ways that we, we can enrich the lives of others with knowledge, with skill, with abilities, with material goods, and so forth. And sometimes that's what's really needed. Really needed. Just bring some goods, some, something good, and enrich. And, the, and lo and behold, the color for that is gold, or yellow, or gold. And sometimes there are injustices in the world. Unfortunately, there are inju in injustices in the world. People behaving badly. Or there may be also natural calamities where simply healing is, is going to be ineff ineffective. Enriching is going to be ineffective. Sometimes force. Force is necessary. Force is necessary. If a mudslide buries a village... It's not a time for enrichment. It's not time for healing. It's time for using, get some bulldozers in there and get the mud out. See if you can get the mud off and, and save, save the survivors who are buried. It's a time for brute force. Bring in the bulldozers. Bring in, bring in some muscle. Bring in some power. Bring in some power. Right? So it can be something like that for natural calamities. Bring in the heavy, you know, bring in the civil, civil engineers and so forth. Bring in some force. Bring in some power. If... One group is bullying another, exploiting another. another. Another force, another country, another agency, another individual possibly may be able to bring in just sheer power and force and be able to use that power to, to subdue, to subdue. Parents do this all the time. The older little brother is bullying the little sister. And the father comes in and said, if you do that again, you will be sorry. I will not tolerate that. Now stop it right now. And the father weighs four times as much as the older, the older son, you know. It's no contest. When the son gets bigger, then we have a problem. They tend to get bigger. You know. So sometimes force. There's nothing malevolent in all of this. It can be utterly motivated by compassion. Obviously, the bulldozer moving out the mud. 
but also the parent disciplining the child. It may be 100% compassion with no rage, no hostility, no mental affliction. So sometimes lamas also, very forceful, really good lamas, and they're not, they're not deviating, they're not falling off the path. Sometimes they will use the force of their authority, of their personal presence, of their minds, and they get things done. Right? So the color, color code for that is red, color of power, color of force. And sometimes that's necessary. Nothing less will do. The healing, the pacifying, not sufficient. Enriching, not sufficient. Sometimes it just has to be force. But the force doesn't have to be violent and does not need to injure. does not need to injure. Right? But it is force. You're stronger, you use it, and you subdue that which is not as strong. And of course, the stronger you are, then the greater benefit you can be. The more wide a variety of circumstances, you can use your force. You will not yourself be overpowered by the bully, by the extortionist, by the outlaws, and so forth and so on. And then finally, and this is why I say there's a real, I, to my mind, there's a real sequence here. There are occasions, and it's a very sad, a sad truth, but it, I think it is a truth. There are occasions where violence is necessary, ferocity is necessary, and perhaps even violence. So it's got an edge to it. It is ferocity. You'll see all those wrathful deities in the Indo-Tibetan Buddhist pantheon. There's a ferocity there. It may be expressing in violence. And there are occasions in the, in the bodhisattva array of activities, there are occasions. It's unfortunate, but it's just the way it is, where violence is necessary. It's true in medicine. I mean, cutting somebody open with a knife, that's an act of violence. I mean, thugs do that. They, they poke you in the guts with a knife. And so does the surgeon. It is an act of violence. But then why are they cutting you open and bleeding you all over the place and, so, and taking out tissue? Well, of course, it's all an act of benevolence. Yes, this is... This is an act of violence on the body. You're, you're violating it with a knife. But there's a greater good here in the motivation is only to heal, only to be a benefit, and not to give you, just give you pain, obviously. And so there are occasions in the world, and I think we're aware of them. Some people might feel, and some people do feel, it's not conjectural, that in the case of the, the recent killing, I mean, the killing of Os Osama bin Laden, I won't take a stance here. I think we all have our own intelligence. But he was unarmed when he was shot. So I think they probably could have captured him, brought him back in a helicopter, put him on a boat, shipped him off to New York City, and, and have a trial. And then just wonder how many suicide bombers would be coming to, the, to that vicinity. I'm sure they gave a lot of thought to this, because he was not armed in shooting. He was, arm, he was unarmed, and they shot him dead. And Obama said, we do it again. We do it again. So I'm not here to make a political statement at all. But the Dalai Lama, when he heard about that, he said, sometimes it's justified. Sometimes countermeasures are necessary. It's very unfortunate. Sometimes it's necessary. It is the lesser of evils. So, we, I, again, I'm not trying to impose any judgment or evaluation on that. We all have, I think we all have equally good abilities to evaluate, you know, that particular, particular case. It's for our own wisdom. But overall, I will say as a statement of fact, that from the Bodhisattva perspective, from the from in the Mahayana perspective, there are times where violence is necessary, but the motivation is not hatred. The motivation is compassion. The same motivation all the way through. So equanimity, equanimity. Uh, what I would invite you for the first half of the session, more or less, is to bring to mind situations from the past situations you may very well encounter in the future that have tended to arouse either craving or hostility. And then to imagine to imagine, how might you be present with that? If there's something you do about it, why be upset, falling out of equanimity? If there's nothing you could do about it, why be upset, falling out of equanimity? Can you imagine maintaining your equilibrium? And then, if there's a call for action, doing what is, need what is needed, what is the most, most appropriate, what is the most beneficial, but not motivated by craving or hostility. So that's one vision. That's one aspect of equanimity. I think enormously useful. And then you can think, and I won't give any examples here, I think we can all e think e e uh, equally well. In the political scene, the international political scene, have there ever been occasions, and maybe in recent, recent history, where those in charge, those in charge, those with political power, leapfrog right over the, the diplomacy and the, the calming and the peaceful way, and leap right over the 
the, the enriching and so forth. And maybe even reap right over the, the power business and using just the sheer influence of your country and, your, your, and so forth and just go directly to violence. That has that ever happened? And how, how well does that turn out? Knowing, having just said, in the Bodhisattva arsenal of practices from calming all the way to violence, there is a role for violence. But if we just jump over the early ones, let's just bring in the troops. Let's kick some ass, you know? Because that's something you can really, there's a lot of money behind that. It's really, you'll get a lot of support for people who adopt that mentality easily. And when, when it's the last resort, it may be really the, the best solution. But my sense, this is my opinion, if we skip over the first three and go directly to that one, skip over the first two and go directly to brute force, skip over the first one and go just to directly throw some money at it, don't think it worked out so well. Short term, maybe. Long term, not my sense. So that's the first aspect of equanimity, then moving on right on fairly succinctly. Then we move into the more of the, the Mahayana approach to equanimity. And this is now much more explicitly emphasizing the equally open-heartedness, the equal sense of caring, of loving kindness and compassion, which may be implemented meditatively in the practice of Donglen, where we attend to a wide array of people, and I would say really pretty much human beings, could include others for sure, and that is, that is, if you prefer carcass spaniels over cobras, you might want to work on that a little bit, you know. So this equal sense of caring, of loving kindness. And for the second part, I'd, I'd like to really not add much here. Not add much. But allow your, your awareness to go into that kind of the settling the mind in its natural state mode and simply see who comes to mind. Who comes to mind. Attend to them closely. And see in each case, whoever it is, somebody you know by way of the media, somebody from history, from, from your, own personal his, your own personal history, somebody you engage with nowadays or will be engaging with in a couple of weeks, uh, who tends to arouse either craving or attachment, hostility or indifference, and attend to them closely. And it occurred to me as I was meditating on this this afternoon, a statement that is really quite um, startling takes one aback a little bit. comes up a lot in the Lojong literature, the mind-training literature, where one sage after another, Atisha, Chekawa, uh, whoever it may be, these great teachers from the past, say whenever we see a fault in another person, we see an all, whether it's behavioral, or we say, ah, there's a clear sign of arrogance, this person is very hostile, that person is very greedy, this person's behavior is, oh, that's, you know, that's terrible, that's sexually exploitative, and so forth, whatever it is, we see a fault. What's the lojong? The lojong. Look upon it as your own fault. Look at that as your own fault. And I'm sure, I mean, I, I first encountered that so many years ago. And I think, I can't even remember what my first response was, was but I can imagine it be, give me a break, I'm not that bad. <laughs> you know, I don't go around blowing up people. I'm not a rapist. I, I don't rob banks. I don't torture people. I, I don't do a lot of it. It's not mine. That's theirs. I, I don't want that one. <laughs> Thanks. No, thank you. You know, I have enough to deal with without, you know, attending to all the evils in the world and thinking these are my own faults. And of course, the, the sages who express this, these are no fools. They're not naive. They're, they have a response to what I just said. That what they, It's not like, oh, gee, I never thought of that. You know? <laughs> you know? And I look at it in this way. I, I, there are multiple levels, and I won't get into all of them. I think I'll just focus on one. And that is when we try to make sense of other people's behavior. We try to make sense of it in terms of what were they thinking, what were they desiring, what was going on in their minds. Because behavior is just behavior. A person sticking a knife into another person, if you had never ever even heard of surgery, and you were just allowed to be in the... The, the room where they watch, I can't even remember what it's called, but watching you know, surgery take place. And you'd never even heard of surgery before, and he sees some guy with a mask coming in. <laughs> Obviously wants to hide his identity. <laughs> right? <laughs> and it comes in with a knife, and first they knock the person out, so they're oblivious. They don't even know they're about to be knifed. You know, first they just knock them unconscious. And then now that they can't do anything, then they just stick knives into them. You know? Wow, and we think, man, what a creepy place. Hospitals are torture chambers. So obviously it's pretty silly because we're all familiar with surgery. 
But it's not silly because we all know what's going on. And we know that at least there's a high level of professionalism there, and there may very well be compassion. Not always, but there often is. Really, the, the doctor is acting out of compassion, truly wanting to save a life or heal a disease or injury. And so we make sense of people sticking knives into each other. We make, we make sense of context and what's going on in mind and why they're doing it. So when we make sense of other people's ex- facial expressions, of their words, let alone you know, sticking knives into people, but physical behavior, verbal behavior, facial expression, and so forth, we're making sense. And we are like artists in this yumi relationship, this yumi relationship where we're always understanding people's behavior in terms of something that makes sense to ourselves. But how can it make sense to ourselves unless we have some taste of it ourselves? If I'd never experienced anger in my life and I saw somebody acting out of anger, I think I'd just be perplexed. You must be ill. Are you having a spasm? Is this, is this, is this called epilepsy? Is this Tourette syndrome? Uh, what illness is this? You're shouting and your face looks very odd. And you look like you might hurt somebody. Why would you want to be? Are, are you insane? Maybe you're psychotic. You know? One could make sense of it. You've never experienced anger. But if you have, then you, oh, that makes perfectly good sense. Another person acts out of lust. Another person acts out of envy. We make sense of other people's behavior in terms of our own experience. So can I make sense of Osama bin Laden's behavior? Absolutely, yes. I get it. I totally get it. I don't agree with it, of course, but I totally get it. If you, if you adopted, had his belief, belief system, if you have that belief system, then what he did makes perfectly good sense. If you have that belief system. I don't have that belief system, but I can imagine having that belief system. And I get it. I understand it. I think I think I kind of understand it. And why people would make such sacrifices, why they'd be willing to blow themselves up. It's for a greater good. I understand that. It, it's delusional. It's crazy. But I understand it. I'm crazy enough that that makes sense to me. Not that I ever want to do it. I think you're, you're reading what I'm saying here. I'm not on the verge of, you know, becoming a terrorist. But I understand it. And so, likewise, for other heinous acts, for us to make sense of it, there has to be some resonance. Some resonance. Things that I think I would never do in this lifetime, and I'm really quite confident. I get it. Might I have done it in some past lifetime? What might I not have done in some past life? And so, as we view the world around us, and the sense of being so populated, engaging a wide variety of activities, as we attend to them, each one, this could be me, if not this lifetime, or some other lifetime. If this guy, Alan Wallace, had born, been born in 1950 in Afghanistan, in Palestine, in Iraq, would I be this Alan Wallace? If somebody just took that, took, took that egg and that sperm and put it in somebody else's uterus? Some woman in one of those countries? And then raised me as, would I be this Alan Wallace? The answer is absolutely no way possible. I'd be somebody quite different. And what would I be like? I bet I could find somebody over there who would be just like me had I been born there. You know? And so viewing all faults as our own, viewing each one as this could have been me, this could have been me. Perhaps someone just like this was me in some previous life, in some future life, could be, could happen. And if I don't want that ever to be occurring in my life stream in the future, I'm going to do everything I can to avoid that, to nip that in the bud now. Final point, it's not only in the negative side. When we see negative behavior, we make sense of it because we can resonate with it. If we can resonate with it, that means the seeds are here. The seeds are here. They may be dormant for a whole lifetime, but that doesn't mean they were dormant in past lifetimes. No guarantee they'll be dormant in the future lifetime. But also when we see, when we see people acting with virtue out of very, very profound utterly profound insight, like the story I've told you a number of times. I think I've, I mentioned it here. Maybe not. Of one of the Mahasiddhas, a, a, a great contemplative Dzogchen adept in Tibet, when Gatrudamuchi was a little boy receiving teachings. Did I tell, you, tell that story in this retreat? Because I've told it many times. Okay, you get a good story. Here comes a good story. Of inexplicable behavior. Like, what? 
And it's a true story. I, I heard it from Gautier Rinpoche, and I, and I was translating for him. And then I went back, and I recounted the story that he told in my words and said, did I get that right? Just because if, if I narrated this, I didn't want to make any mistake. It's so outlandish. That did I get it right? And he listened to me tell his story, and he said, yeah, that's entirely it. So the story I'm telling, about to tell you is from his lips to my ear, and double-check with him. Okay? So Gyatru Nabuchi, Gyatul means Chinese tuku, Gyatul, because he's Chinese. He's Chinese, he's ethnically Chinese, both parents were Chinese. Uh, but he was born, it, born in that region between Tibet and China where nobody really cared about the borders. There weren't any. Bunch of Chinese, bunch of Tibetans are all Buddhists, they're living pretty happily together. You know, that's the way it was for centuries. He was born right in that area, but both parents happened to be Chinese. But from the age of three or whatever, he was identified by some Tibetan lamas. Oh, you got one of ours. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Would you mind, uh, you know, <laughs> giving him back? <laughs> so the parents, you know, they're Buddhist and they're living, you know, with cheap by jowl with Tibetans. And they understood, you know, tuku business and said, oh, you want our kid? Okay, whatever. <laughs> and gave him the kid, you know. So he was raised then by Tibetan lamas, as so many tukus were. And so there he was in, in old Tibet, which is almost unimaginable now because it's, it's, it'll never come back. Not like, well, it will never come back. History does not repeat itself. At best, it rhymes. And so he was raised, uh, he was then brought up. I'm sure he had contact with his parents, but he's brought up by Tibetan lamas, utterly a Tibetan lama. And so he, when he was a child, he was, I don't know exactly how old, I never double-checked that one, but eight or ten years old. And he's rather, rather short, so he would have been probably a really cute little monk. Um, let's see, let's imagine he's eight years old. Well, f being a tuku, he was allowed to come to the most esoteric teachings from early on. Dzogchen teachings, Vajrayana teachings, and so forth, because they want the little tuku to get all the imprints and empowerments and so forth, so they can start teaching soon, like when they're 20, 25, and not have to wait until they're 40 or, 40 or 50. And so this little tuku was, uh, it was at night. He told me this story. It was at night, and there was a group of monks, I think not many, maybe 20 or so, And he, being a tuku, was right in the front row because they're kind of, you know, they have privileged status. And it was at night, and there was this extraordinarily accomplished Mahasiddha, Dzogchen adept, a man of great power, deep inside. He was giving teachings, I believe they were on Dzogchen. And it was at night, and to, to light them so they could all see each other, they had a bonfire going. So there was this Mahasiddha giving the teachings, the bonfire for light, and then these, these monks listening, I'm sure with rapt attention, Uh, to these Dzogchen teachings by this man who was deeply, deeply accomplished. And in the midst of the teachings, suddenly, and I love to just try to, to imagine it, you know, in the midst of the teachings, suddenly he took on a ferocious demeanor. Like, he said, it's time to put one, take, it's time to send one of you to hell. I'm just imagining something like this. This is the, wrath, this is the wrathful mudra, mudra. So don't get in the way of my fingers when I do that. That's joking. So, but he said, it's time to send one of you to hell. Kind of freaky thing to say. And who does he pick? As he says, it's time to send one of you to hell. And he comes over to the cute little monk, Yaturambuchi. He picks him up and puts him right in the middle of the bonfire. Eight-year-old boy puts him right in the middle of the bonfire. All the monks are just stunned into, like that, stunned into silence. Yaturambuchi is sitting there in the middle of the bonfire, Something like this. <laughs> It's my imagination, but I don't think it'd be that different. He, he said it was warm. It was really pleasantly warm and kind of cool, if you know what I mean. And just like, whoa. You know, I'm an eight-year-old sitting in the middle of a bonfire. <laughs> cool. <laughs> you know? He's just sitting there kind of dazed and kind of like, whoa. And for seconds and seconds and seconds, until eventually, finally, maybe 15 seconds, 30 seconds later, one of the monks in the front row thinks it's time to rescue this little boy. So he reaches into the fire, pulls him out of the fire, gets a little bit singed when he does it, because it was a real fire after all. Gatron and Butch's robes weren't even singed. No damage at all. No harm at all. No pain at all. So that was the end of the story. He went back, and then the teaching Now that I've sent one of you to hell, we go back to the Dzogchen teachings. You know. What did he have in mind? <laughs> well, what he had in mind was to give me a really good story to pass on to other people. <laughs> But what else he had in mind, now I speak in, once again in jest, I don't have a clue. It's a cool story. And after number two assured me, literally true. 
and it's beyond my bandwidth. It's beyond my imagination. No harm was done, so I don't think there was anything evil there. Nobody got, nobody got harmed at all, so there's no evil. But even if you had that ability, why would you do that? Why would you do that? Or my stepdaughter told me that Yangtana Muji, another lama of this caliber, of this caliber, he was in just south of Santa Barbara. Just, no, just recently. I wasn't there. I would think I was here. And he was giving some empowerment. And the vas, where they, you know, they had the, the pour a little water, a little saffron water, 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 like that. The vas got empty. And the, the, puja, the puja attendant, the chupin, chupin, was, oh, it's empty. And was going to go off and fill it. And Yang Chanabachi said, never mind. And he just took this pot and just went, put it back down again and proceeded to pour and pour and pour for the rest of the empowerment. Never got empty. Why would he choose that? Why didn't he go to MIT and do that? <laughs> to Caltech, to Harvard, you know, with a whole team of scientists peering in, okay, where's the trick? Where's the trick? Why would he do this in a little empowerment in Ojai, California with a few disciples looking on? That's not really big. If you want to make a statement to the world, look, cities can take place. I can materialize water at will. Uh, and it said when during those many years he, he was in prison camp, he would materialize food for himself and his fellow inmates. I actually believe it. Um, obviously, people can make up stories. I don't think so. Not in the case of this man. That's why I always take in context. In the case of this man, oh, I don't put many. I don't put any. I don't, 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 don't put any limits. But why? Why that? Why then? I have not a clue. If you want to make a big impact, do this at MIT with, you know, in scientifically controlled experimental situation and so forth and so on. But he didn't. He did it there just, no big deal. <laughs> and then just, like no big deal. Like, like you know, like filling your, filling your gas tank with petrol. That's no big deal. It's easier so you don't have to go to the faucet <laughs> and fill it up by breathing water into it somehow I don't know, out of his breath. So, whether it's there in terms of cities, whether it's in terms of wisdom, whether it's in terms of inconceivable compassion, sometimes people displaying compassion in ways that just defy the imagination, is because it's beyond the bandwidth. So invariably we try to make sense of it. And how do we make sense of it in terms of our own experience? Right? And so whatever virtues we see, they are, they are our virtues. Whatever faults we see, they are our faults. If not in this lifetime, some other lifetime, it's all of a continuum. So as we go into second phase, that I invite you then in that mode, open your awareness, see whoever comes in, move beyond the I-it relationship to the I-you relationship as if each one is a reflection of you, as each one is really indivisible from you, because in fact each one is. Well, that's interesting. Find a comfortable position, let's meditate together. Mawalaso, are there questions or insights, comments about the practices, first of all? Any practical questions? Start with Roger. I'm a little, uh, a little confused about uh, the... the uh, <laughs> get the microphone in front of me. Um, you said that when we sink into the substrate, we take no baggage with us. And that kind of surprised me. I think you mean maybe that we take the baggage, but it's dormant? Because it seems like our consciousness comes with baggage until we get to a very, uh, there's stage four jhana or something. Oh, there's still baggage there. There's still baggage. Yeah. Okay. It's that you're just not, it's just unpacked is the way I put it. Is that be a, be a fair statement? Sure. Um, when your coarse mind dissolves into the substrate consciousness, does this mean that somehow you've left all your mental afflictions behind and all negative karma behind? Of course not. Of course not. You haven't left any of your mental afflictions behind. They've just gone dormant. You haven't left any of your negative karma behind. It's not purified just by slipping into the substrate. Otherwise, all you'd have to do is fall asleep to purify karma. You know? Because you slip into the substrate consciousness there. So know what I was referring to. So you're quite right. You're quite right. The mental afflictions simply, overall, the coarse mental afflictions of the coarse mind grow dormant. The coarse mental afflictions that are locked into the desire realm, 
I want this, I want that in the desire realm. I can't stand this, I'm angry at that in the desire realm. That goes dormant because you've slipped into another dimension. You've slipped into, if you've achieved shamati, you've just crossed the threshold over into the form realm. So you're not going to bring any of the desire realm baggage into that while you're in it, but that baggage is, has just gone dormant. That's why shamati doesn't bring about any irreversible results whatsoever. And that's why Dujum Lingba says, if, if all you do is achieve shamata, and you don't budge, you have not moved one inch closer to enlightenment. You would put in all that time, a year, two years, who knows how long, and you have not even moved one inch closer to enlightenment. If that's all you do, as a platform, fantastic, as an endpoint, it's nowhere at all. It's just like in the middle of a basketball game where you're, lo you're losing 23 to 175, and you call time out. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's not going to change the game. You're going to lose by a landslide no matter what, right? And so... What can't you, but I'll stand by my statement. I wasn't just, I wasn't having a delirious fit when I said that. And that is you're leaving, be, you, you can't bring your baggage with you. And that is the coarse mind does not get to, get to descend down to intact. You can't take that down to the substrate consciousness and have your coarse mind down there. And so your personal history, you can't consciously be holding that personal history and who you think you are and the coarse activations of the coarse mind. You can't be holding that consciously and bring it down that to that level right so that's what i was referring to your ordinary sense of identity has to dissolve you can't fall asleep you can't fall asleep and be maintaining that whole course activation of mind as you do so the same kind of thing that's it but having said that when you come out of shamata when you wake up when you go into the substrate consciousness when you die and then you come and then you get reborn or some you get born in some other body that is the continuum becomes embodied later on uh, then, of course, all the imprints are there. The mental afflictions, everything is there. So, yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. Thank you. About the practice of the, te the techniques themselves, because that's, again, the th th this, is, this is a bit theoretical. It's still, it's still very relevant. Um, but when I'm, as I told you at the very beginning of the retreat, I'm very, very dearly still as, uh, aspiring, had the aspiration that uh, when we are winding down next week, that for whatever practices among the ones we've engaged with here, for whatever practices you'd really like to continue in, that you do have that confidence, that when you practice them, and here's the, here's the phrasing, when you're doing them correctly, you know you're doing correctly. You're not second-guessing yourself. Because there's not enough to do them correctly, and then still being, well, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not. Then it doesn't help that you're doing it correctly, because you're not giving yourself the affirmation needed to carry on with confidence. So, with that note, Lizzie, what's on your mind? So, do you have any tips for when doing a self-guided meditation on one of the immeasurables, yeah. finding oneself really swept away into discursive thought or daydreaming? It, it, you know, sometimes I, my mind is much more distractible than others. Sure, and sure. so, you know, I'll, I'll be doing like the meditation on equanimity and find that I just, you know, Three five minutes went by and I'm like lost somewhere. Yeah. But what I was I started to go there because this person came to mind and then yeah, I'm like gone. Yeah. Um, shamatha could help with that. <laughs> I think it's called course excitation. But no, your question is a very good one, and I'm sure you're not alone. Um, there's a there's a whole spectrum here. There's a whole spectrum of ways to. Maintain that delicate balance between having this be regimented, formulaic, ritualized, litur liturgicized, so you're just going through an empty rit ritual. And I've done it. When you rip through it, Okay, next. I just finished the four measurables, by the way. You know, I've, I've recited it that fast. Sometimes that's how fast you go through the four measurables. Like, I wouldn't read the telephone book that fast, you know. And so can this be just an absolutely formulaic, empty ritual? And so there's one extreme. And the other extreme is we're sitting there and the mind is wandering all over the place. And they're both about equally devoid of any meaning whatsoever. We may as well, you know, do something more meaningful like play golf you know, or, or something. And so, so in between. So now we're looking for something in between. Um, especially if you've just come from a shamatha session. If you've got 45 minutes and you put in the, maybe the first 20 minutes in shamatha 
of your flavor, of your choice, and then you go directly from that into the four measurables, I think you'll find it works a lot better. Okay? Uh, so that would be one kind of thing. But now within, just within the practice itself, uh, one slender way, slender way that you can just help, because it's all in the spirit of loving kindness, not, oh, you know, it's not, it's not how do you say, disciplinary. It's not a reprimand. It's not, it's just like, how can I do this better? I'd love to do this better. One thing is, if you're practicing loving kindness, for example, you may have in front of you a very simple outline of the phases of the practice you'd like to do. Okay? It can be any of the classics. For loving kindness itself, there's, here's a really nice one. And that is just have right in front of you within, that is, if you're sitting here at about 45 degree angle from your eyes, right here, and well lit and large enough that you can see it. If you like to wear glasses when you meditate, fine. Otherwise, large enough font that you can read it with no glasses. Because I don't really like to wear glasses when I meditate. Um, but have the Buddha's metta sutta, the Buddha's discourse on loving kindness. And, have that, and it's only a paragraph. It's only one long paragraph. But having that there and just reading a line and then closing the eyes or not, as you wish, but then just reflecting there, internalizing it, bringing it in, you know, and then reading another line and going back. And that could be your whole meditation, just really slowly reading through one paragraph of the Buddha's own teachings on the cultivation of loving kindness. It doesn't get much better than that. Or the, the, sh the short outline from Buddha Gosa, meditating on yourself. Okay, I've got 24 minutes. Okay, more or less. Okay, it's going to be four phases. I'm going to spend, all right, more or less mm, six minutes, and I'm going to focus on myself. And then more or less, again, it can be too easily too regimented. Oops, six minutes, half stop, six minutes just went by. You know, obviously we can be silly. But then attending to a very dear, dear loved one, and then to a friend, then to a neutral, and so forth. You know, so you can have just an outline in front of you. That can be helpful. That might be quite sufficient, just having the outline. A bit of structure, just like a corral. Like when we're doing full body awareness, the corral is the, the field of tactile sensations. You try not to let your awareness jump outside the corral into thoughts or other sensory fields. Another possibility, though, and this is where we start to really get fuzzy boundaries between uh, reading and meditation. Now, Christians know this very well. And, they, and I, I, I mean, I say this with only respect. Um, very devout Christians, and I've known quite a number of them. They will take passages of Scripture. And Jews the same, no difference. And I'm sure Muslims the same. And many others, Buddhists and Taoists and so forth. But this is really, it's very common in religion and not very common outside of religion, at least not off the, off the top of my head, where you'll take a passage of teachings, it could be from, you know, whatever, a sacred, sacred text, whatever it is, and, and it's in front of you, and then you're just reading it slowly, reading it slowly and reflecting and reading it slowly, and it will be in a very devotional, maybe in a very devotional, maybe a very worshipful fashion, devotional fashion, but really, this is a meditation. For many Christians, this is what they mean by meditate. You take a passage, you reflect upon it, you meditate upon it, you come back to it 10, 20, 40, 50 times, you know? And that's meditation. That's discursive meditation. When you're first... But now let's make a little distinction here. And that is, for those of us with, with some background, you know, fairly well, some, some degree of background in Buddhism, we know there is understanding from hearing, Okay, that's from learning, listening to Dharma talk, or freshly reading something, some Dharma text, and learning from it. And so that's understanding arising from hearing or from studying. And then beyond that, there's a deeper level of understanding from reflection, from thinking, from ref yeah, thinking, reflection, cogitation. And that's where we're weaving the teachings into our lives. We're trying to make sense of it. We're checking it, investigating it, uh, personalizing it somewhat. We're kind of getting in there like a, like a baker kneading bread getting our hands into it and really working it, working it, weaving it together with the text in our own lives, our own understanding, weaving into the worldview, and again, putting it to the test of experience and reason. So there's that. But beyond that, beyond that, then there's a meditation arising from meditation. And it's very easy to think, oh, but that's, that's shamato, or that's just, you know, that's rikpa, or that's something non-discursive. That's, you know, that's shamato, vipassana, dzogchen, something like that. Not necessarily at all. If you're reading through the Metta, the Metta Sutta, the Buddhist Discourse on Loving-Kindness, um, after you've read it once or twice, there's really nothing much more to learn there. I mean, it's not a very informative... You're not going to learn a whole lot by reading that paragraph. It's one aspiration after another, right? And so when you first read through it, you say, ah, that's the nature of loving-kindness practice in Buddhism. Aha, that's, that's how it's done. Those are the kind of aspirations of So you get some understanding from reading, from hearing, from learning, study. 
And then you start to weave it in. Are, are these meaningful motivations, are aspirations? Can I, is that something I want to do? And how does this apply to my life? And who might I bring to mind? And so then you, you're kind of engaging in dialogue with the text back and forth. But when you go to meditation, when you go to meditation, it's not really a dialogue with the text anymore. In, the, in my experience, in my, in my interpretation, it's not really a dialogue with the text anymore. It's not really a dialogue with Buddhism anymore. Buddhism being things that you learn about in texts and from teachings and Dharma, Dharma discourses and so forth. It's rather that these are your thoughts that are written and you bring them in so you, no, you can no longer see them. If, you, if, you're, if I were just getting to know you, then I'd first have the wisdom from hearing, learning, okay, what kind of a person is this? And then as I get to know you better and I'd, I'd learn about your aspirations and how they relate to mine and shared interests and so forth, we, we can become friends. I think we are friends. And so that's more of an entanglement, right? But now this is where you've slipped into it and you're looking at the world from the perspective of the Metta Sutta. And you're no, no, you're no longer attending to the Metta Sutta. You're attending to sentient beings, right? And so religious people, and I'm sure others, I, I don't mean to make that as a, an absolute barrier, but I know a lot of religious people do this. They enter into it, and, the, and their, their minds have so entered into the text, they can no longer see the text in a way. They are attending to reality by way of the teachings. They are viewing reality by way of the teachings. So I'm sure you know a lot of really good books, and many of them address the four immeasurables, or bodhicitta, or simply compassion, loving kindness. Some are Buddhist, some may be from other traditions. There's so much good literature out there. Um, that that also can be, then, then you actually may be reading through. But as you're reading through, you may have a phase where it's really wisdom is arising, understanding arising from reflection, which is good. But when it, when it becomes so interwoven with the kind of the tissue of your mind that you're no longer attending to it, but it's so Im internalized that you're viewing reality from that perspective, that's meditation. That's meditation. And this is where the Tibetan word for meditation, gomba, you've probably heard the etymology means to familiarize, to accustom, to become more and more acquainted. And that is as you are bringing the teachings totally inwards and attending to reality from that perspective, then it's simply familiarizing your sense, yourself, with the sense of every individual you attend, attend to. You attend to them as, as another human being, you know, as another human being, another subject, and not in the I-it relationship. You're looking through how they behave, whether it's agreeable, uh, disagreeable, wholesome, unwholesome. You're recognizing that. We're no fools. But we're seeing through that. And we're seeing here is a person who's worthy of happiness and worthy of freedom from suffering, just as I am. And whether it's Osama bin Laden or it's a Dalai Lama, it's the same. They're very different individuals. But each one actually is equally deserving of finding happiness and freedom from suffering. And one needs a lot more help than the other one. That's the big difference. That Dalai Lama doesn't really need much help. And I would say, my perspective, I think Osama was terribly confused. Yeah. Okay. So there's a nice bandwidth there. Nice bandwidth. As much as, and then you just use as much as helpful. Okay. Yes, Anne. I've been spending quite a bit of time um, on my back. On your back? On my back. Yes. And it's, I'm, I'm starting to wonder if I might not be needing to do that on an ongoing basis. I couldn't quite hear that. I'm, I'm thinking I may need to do that on an ongoing basis. Uh-huh, yeah. Okay. Um, and my question is, do, are there... Um, among the practices you've taught us, are there some that do not lend themselves to that position? No. Only an adjunct to one of the practices, and that's the gentle vas breathing. Not so good. Too, too contrived, too effortful. But could one practice all of those shamatha practices and achieve shamatha by any one of those methods on the supine? Yeah. No reason not to. And the four measurables? Absolutely. Otherwise, one, one can imagine sick people could never develop the four measurables because they're lying in a hospital bed or what have you. Or the very, very elderly or the infirm could never develop four measurables. Oh, so sorry. Wrong posture. 
<laughs> so no, no, it's a perfectly good question. There's, there's no, there's no, a perfectly good question. And when I, years ago, I was teaching at a, a gorgeous retreat center. It's Dzogchen Dera. It's uh, Sogya Rinpoche's retreat center on the west coast of Ireland. Oh, it's so gorgeous. Right on the cliffs overlooking, overlinking the ocean. And uh, as usual, I'm teaching multiple postures, sitting in the, in the supine mostly. And one of the lovely men there who worked there, who has helped, wanted to develop it, and, and they may have done it by now, but I know back then, this was quite a year, several years back, they wanted to develop part of that retreat center into a hospice to care for the dying. And not many people teach meditation, at least not in the Buddhist tradition, not many people teach meditation and say it's okay to be in the supine position. Because that's for flaky hippies, we all know that, you know, and that's California hippies in particular. And so, but I, I, I hold aloft the, the, you know, the victory banner of meditating in the supine position. So I was teaching it there, and this fellow, his name is Andrew, very fine man. Uh, he came to me towards the end of the retreat and said, Alan, I'm so, so glad you taught this posture, because we want to turn part of this retreat center into a hospice. We're going to have people here who are dying, and they're not going to be sitting in full lotus, you know. They're going to be mostly lying down. And to be able to embrace that as a posture and let the, assure these people, you may be lying down, but you can do many, many practice, life-transforming practice. You can be an alchemist of the death process, of the dying process. You can transform the whole dying process. And unless you're a very advanced yogi, you probably won't die in the full lotus. Some do. But some of the greatest yogis don't. Ratchet Rinpoche, when I went to Dharmasala with a team of neuroscientists back in 1992, uh, there was one lama who passed away six days before we arrived. And this was with Richie Davidson, with Cliff Seren, uh, Francisco Varela. I mean, this is a pretty eminent group. And then I was a little ragtag guy, guy going along as the interpreter. Um, but we arrived there. It was for, a, a, for, for the, a mind and life meeting called Sleeping, Dreaming, and Dying. It was a fantastic meeting. I loved it. And uh, we arrived there, arrived in Dharamsala, put down our, our baggage, and as soon as we'd, we'd no, sooner, no sooner settled into our rooms that we got a message from the private office saying, go immediately to the home of this lama. He passed away just six days ago and, and he was in the clear light of death. So if you can, it would be good for you to witness that. And we missed, him, we missed his clear light of death experience only by a matter of hours. But he had spent six days and we saw him on the seventh. But the reason for making that, that rather large tangent was he, uh, he, he spent six days in the clear light of death. I mean, he was an accomplished yogi. And that is, there was warmth at the heart, there was a sweet fragrance in the room, absolutely no decomposition of the body. And this was in October, so the median temperature was like 20 degrees, 22 degrees, you know. So his body, any, any person in the medical profession will know if you have a body at room temperature for a week, no one will want to be within 20 feet of it, probably 50 feet of it. It stinks, not this one. So we, we were allowed to go into, his, into the room and the clear light of death experience was finished. They, they knew it had ended some hours before we came, but only hours before. And we saw a body that had almost no signs of deterioration or decomposition, almost none. And there was no bad smell. It was an odd smell, but it wasn't a bad smell at all. And so, but again, why I mention all of this, it was a big tangent. He was lying down. He was lying down, yeah. So if he can lie down and he's a great yogi, then the likes of us, we can lie down too. Yeah, good. Yeah, I think I saw another hand. Anything else coming up? Yes, go ahead, Suzanne. Alan, I wondered if you can just talk um, briefly about one's root guru. I thought you were going to ask that. <laughs> and when you said talk briefly, I thought, oh. <laughs> uh, I think, yeah, uh, we have about three minutes before it's exactly six o'clock. And so what is, a gr and of course, you, this, this, was this issue came up in our personal meeting. And so I will try, I'll do, I'll do my best because I don't want to gouge deeply into our, our dinner time. Root guru. It's a term that I think, as far as I know, I don't think you find it anywhere in the Theravada tradition. The whole notion of root guru, I don't think so. Kalyanamitta. Uh, spiritual friend, yes, and there are other other terms for teacher and so forth. But number one, is it Theravada? Is it found at the Shravakayana? I don't think so. Is it found in Mahayana? I'm not sure so. It's just, then I just plead ignorance. Is that a common phrase in just straight Bodhisattva literature? My sense is not, but I'm not sure because you know I've read only a small percentage of Mahayana, Mahayana literature. Uh, but then we move into Vajrayana, into Vajrayana, and then it's all over the place. It's all over the place. But it has different meanings in different contexts. 
And so one of the primary meanings of it is say, okay, root guru versus what? Root guru versus something else. It's not root guru. What other kind of guru is there besides a root guru? And it's Sawe Lama and Gyuve Lama. So it goes in a pair, root guru and lineage guru. That's one way of understanding root guru. A root guru, in this context, between the, 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 the division of root guru and lineage guru, is a root guru who's the one who you actually have had direct contact with. You know the person in, in person, right? And a lineage guru is that guru's guru, and that guru's guru. <coughs> <coughs> and going right back to Buddha Shakyamuni, those you didn't have direct contact with, their lineage and the root is one you had direct contact with. So it's that simple. And that means, of course, you can have multiple root gurus. And generally speaking in Vajrayana, you can have multiple root gurus. So that's one meaning. Now we go into oral, oral transmission, oral lineage, and that kind of thing. And over the last 40 years, I've heard some lama say, when asked, you know, who is your root guru? And the answer from this one lama, and I don't know what the source was, but it's, again, there's a whole continuum of teachings that are really oral, and you may not be able to find exactly some source. And so I, th I think this may be of that kind, although there may be a source someplace. Uh, and that is, who is a root guru? The person who really brought you into Dharma. The person who is the catalyst, really inspired you to come to Dharma, to devote yourself to Dharma. It could be your mother. It could be the village lama. It could be whoever it is. That could be the root guru. Right? Could be that. Could be that. Um, um, if many, many people in the, in the Buddhist tradition... Uh, Tibetan Buddhist tradition in particular, have multiple gurus. You know, it could be dozens. Atisha had 60. I've had about 60, a bit more than 60. Um, people with whom I've, I've had that formal relationship. I, that's a guru, I'm the disciple. 60. Um, and so among them, it's bound to be the case that there may, there may be some for whom you have a, a much closer tie, stronger faith, Stronger faith. Just, and moreover, you get a very special benefit, a strong resonance, affinity, blessings are there. Uh, and you really feel, this one's really the core. This one's core. For me, it's very clear. It's just only this Dalai Lama. When I look back on the 40 years, every, every, every step has always, he's somehow been implicated. I met my first Tibetan Lama in Germany when I was 20. The Dalai Lama sent him there. And then from there I went to Switzerland and I studied with the Sakya Lama. That was created by His Holiness. And then from there I went to Dharamsala because the Library of Tibetan Works and Archive was opening. That was established by His Holiness. And then when I was fluent in Tibetan, then I wanted to go to a monastery. I went to the Institute of Buddhist Dialectics. That was established by His Holiness. Then I went to Switzerland with Geshe Rapton. His Holiness sent me. Again, it's just, it's, he's always there. He's always there behind all the other lamas, directly or indirectly. So it's, for me, it's just obvious. He's the lama of lamas. He's the fountain. And so, but then there are other, uh, other lamas. Gatranabhaji is my root guru. There's no question, especially for Dzogchen Mahamudra. I mean, there's no one who is, no one kindness like his. For the Galupa tradition, his holiness, Gisharapten, Gisharapten, again, Lamrimba, you know, really so incredibly precious. So when it comes to Vajrayana, I've heard, I've heard, that if, if you identify some lama as your Vajrayana root guru, now it's very specific, it's bracketed in that context, Vajrayana root guru, not Mahayana root guru, not general root guru, Vajrayana root guru, that would be, according to one lineage, uh, that must be a person who has bestowed uh, empowerment, oral transmission, explanation. Wang Lung Ti. Empowerment, oral transmission, and then commentary, explanation. And so that would be a Vajrayana root guru because that person must have the authority to be able to grant empowerment. Okay? Could one be a root, somebody else's root guru without being a Vajrayana root guru? Of course one could. So some people really get very narrow-minded here. Oh, you can't be a root guru because you don't give empowerments. That's just, again, rigid dog dogmatism, fundamentalism, based on ignorance. So there are multiple meanings, multiple meanings, but maybe inclusion now, just, over, just past six, Here's something enormously helpful, and this is now not just hearsay or some lama said. This is very core to the to really the overall Mahayana, Indo-Tibetan Mahayana, and the Vajrayana teachings. It's not Theravada. It's not Theravada, and that is when you have multiple teachings. Some may be really renowned world world figures, like His Holiness Dalai Lama, or other great lamas, you know, known by everybody in the field. Dingo Kinsi Rinpoche, you know, Yongzhen Ling Rinpoche, Sakyatin Rinpoche, Kyawakamapa and so forth, you know. 
And for such individuals, for such lamas, it's very often hard to even very, very close to them. They have so many thousands of disciples. But such a, you may have one or more very great lamas that you only see from afar. You know, they're so renowned and so forth. And then you may have other lamas who are, don't have quite so much recognition, not, not considered to be quite on that level, but very good, maybe as an abbot of a monastery in Nepal. And then other ones, not an abbot, but a, a kempo in the monastery. Not an abbot, but still good. And another one, not a kempo, but still good practitioner. And another one, well, um, really helped you out with, you know, and, and is your guru. You've created that relationship, but more of a spiritual friend guru kind of relationship. And so one can imagine a whole hierarchy here. Oh, the Kamapa's way up there, and then there's the one who's merely the, the great kempo, and then there's the kempo kempo, and then there's the person who didn't finish the kempo, but he's still really good. And then, the, you know, and so one may then, in, in one's mind, in this coarse, dualistic, grasping mind of samsara, think, okay, so I don't give much devotion to the lower one, but the higher one gets a lot of devotion, and then you get 75% devotion, and I give you 50, and you, you only get five, but you're really helpful, thanks a million, but 5%. You know, so one may segregate it like that. Uh, in the context of Vajrayana, that's just an exercise in foolishness. Okay? So in that context, Vajrayana context, then wherever the faith, one, another way of phrasing it is, where is the faith among the various lamas that you've had? Which one arouses the deepest faith? Which one from, from which one do you derive the deepest blessing, the benefit, the strong sense of connection? Even if you only see the person from afar with you know, 50,000 people in the audience. Or maybe it's the one next, next you know, the, the local lama that you just have a great affinity with. A lot of blessing, real benevolence. And so, wherever the faith is the greatest, that can be the root guru. But whoever the root guru is, by whatever criterion, because we, we have to take a break, so we can follow this tomorrow, but we can't do it today. Uh, wherever the faith is strongest, whether it's to a renowned lama like His Holiness. For me, that was so easy. It's not just because renowned, it was because he was implicated everywhere. It, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't choose anybody else. You know, to be the Lama of my Lamas, of all my Lamas. And moreover, he is pretty much, I think, the Lama of all my Lamas. So that kind of makes sense too. Um, but when you have this wide array, thinking some have great realizations, some not so much, some great erudition, some not so much, you focus on one. You focus on one in Vajrayana Guru Yoga. You, inv- you attend to that person, that root guru, as utterly indivisible from your Yidam. Otherwise, it's not Vajrayana. And in so doing, then when you bring to mind all the other lamas, you bring to mind all of them as emanations, as no less, absolutely no less, no lower in the hierarchy, no less, simply as emanations manifesting in different ways, with different skills, strengths, and so forth and so on, but each one coming from the same source, each, each one equally pure, all of them of the same taste. And that's authentic Guru Yoga practice in Vajrayana. And the root lama, indivisible from the yidam, that is the core. That's the center. And then, of course, finally, you, you, you envision that root lama, his mind or her mind. Never want to leave that out. Some, some of my root lamas are, especially one, woman. So he or she, envision this individual, this person's mind, indivisible from the mind of your yidam. And then you imagine coming to your crown, dissolving, and your own body, speech, and mind, indivisible from your guru and your yidam. And now you really... That's full-fledged Vajrayana practice, where it is completely internalized and non-dual. Okay? So, if there's more, we can continue later, but we can't upset our chefs. Why are they coming and getting our food cold? So, enjoy your evening. I'll see you tomorrow morning.